America's Independence Day is here and is on the news. And not just for its historic and cultural significance, but also for other reasons that we'll discuss in this episode. Did you know that it took about a century for our Independence Day to be recognized as a federal holiday? And that it took 162 years from the time we declared our independence from Britain for our Independence Day to become a paid federal holiday. Hey there, news peelers. Today is July 2, 2021, and this is Adele, the host of a History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news, the histories of many countries we read, watch, and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's, and China's histories. And of course, several series on the US economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. In addition to fireworks, barbecues, and family and friends, this year's 4th of July has been on the news for a variety of different reasons, two of which I'll share with you here. The first reason relates to the COVID pandemic. President Biden had set an ambitious goal for 70% of Americans to get at least one dose of a COVID vaccine by the 4th of July. But according to the New York Times, that goal will now be narrowly missed because adults between the ages of 18 to 26 haven't picked up the pace in getting their vaccine shots. The second reason is a little more complicated. As I thumbed through the print edition of the Wall Street Journal this week, I came across a curious headline. It read, Who owns the 4th of July? The headline belonged to an opinion piece written by the journal's deputy editor of the editorial page. Regardless of who wrote the opinion, it's a weird kind of question to ask, isn't it? We all own the 4th of July, don't we? The opinion piece put this question in the context of the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter protests, the toppling of statues of America's icons such as Washington, Lincoln, Jefferson, and Jackson, Francis Scott Key, and others, and from there to President Biden's 2020 victory and the January 6th Capitol riot and insurrection. This made me think, has the meaning of the 4th of July somehow changed since 1776? Did it mean different things to different Americans? Does it still have a different meaning for different Americans? And when did the celebration of the 4th of July start anyway? To get some answers to these questions, I spoke with Dr. Thomas Balzerski, a professor of history at Eastern Connecticut State University, where he teaches early American history, including American popular culture and other related subjects. Dr. Balzerski is a frequent contributor to CNN, The Washington Post, NBC, and other news organizations, and he was featured on the C-SPAN series Lectures in History for his work on antebellum political culture. This week, he published an opinion on CNN in which he talked about this week's release of C-SPAN's 2021 Historian's Survey of Presidential Leadership. In addition to the fact that he was one of the 142 historians who participated in this survey, he also authored a book on President James Buchanan, which is highly relevant to the C-SPAN survey because James Buchanan, and not Donald Trump, is ranked as our country's worst president. The links to Dr. Balzerski's academic homepage, his recent CNN opinion piece, and the C-SPAN 2021 survey are included in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Balzerski and I peel the history behind this news. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. 
Professor Bazersky, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show again. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. So America is about to celebrate the 4th of July. <laughs> My family and I are having uh, the extended family over in our backyard uh, for barbecue. So, But there's a little bit of a curious history here. John Adams, who was very involved in pushing for independence and was, in fact, on the committee for drafting the Declaration of Independence, along with uh, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, wrote to his wife, Abigail Adams, that the 2nd of July, 1776, will be the most memorable in the history of America and will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, which shows games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illumination, and so forth and on. <laughs> Professor Balthazarski, why is John Adams talking about the 2nd of July instead of the 4th of July? What is that all about? Well, glad to be back, Adele, and uh, nothing like cranky old John Adams. Started <laughs> Pleasure talking. to have you back. And yeah, John Adams, you're right. Uh, I remember my high school textbook, Thomas Bailey's The American Pageant, which I think is actually still taught. It's uh, now co-authored by David Kennedy, mm -hmm. uh, emeritus at Stanford, described John Adams as frosty. And I sometimes hold on to that characterization of this frosty uh, descendant of a Puritan who we might call today a stickler for the rules and for etiquette and certainly for the accuracy of history. Exactly. And so we shouldn't be surprised then that what John Adams was talking about was the very moment of the vote, of the vote in the Continental Congress. What vote? Which, well, in which independence was declared. So he's talking about the day that the members of the Continental Congress first approved this Declaration of Independence, July 2nd. It wasn't on July 4th? No, it wasn't. And so that what's, what's interesting here is that, you know, we're now multiple centuries removed away from this event, but in Adams' own lifetime, he went to his grave insisting that, no, July 2nd was the day of independence, not <laughs> July 4th. But he died on July 4th on the same day as, as Thomas Jefferson. Oh, we'll, we'll get to that. And in we'll fact, if anything, if anything, that's the irony of the whole thing is that John Adams' very life and death, in essence, undid his own frostiness. <laughs> and it forced him essentially, by fact of history, to accept that indeed July 4th would be the day uh, that all Americans would celebrate. And in fact, yes, John Adams was in a very small minority who believed that July 2nd should be the holiday. And he really was wrong, I think, because after all, July 4th was the day where the actual draft, where the actual version that was printed of the Declaration of Independence was prepared. And so that is why at the top of that draft, it says July 4th and not July 2. So you have a, a printed document that has a date on it that actually corresponds to the moment of printing. Like we would say a newspaper today, it says the date of the newspaper. The event the newspaper was reporting on would be, of course, before that day. In essence, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a vote that took place before the printing, and that's the difference between July 2 and July 4. You know, when we talk about printing of this declaration, the date on it is July 4th. Actually, that, that makes a lot of sense for having the holiday on July 4th, because that's when if I'm correct on this, Professor Balzarski, that's when the community learned about this. So July 2nd was rather a small event with, with our founders, with America's elites, but July 4th is the day that this news was promulgated. Am I correct on that? Well, you're close, actually. Okay. Um, but you're right to say that it wasn't July 2nd, but it wasn't July 4th either. We, we go <laughs> back, right? Remember, we maybe let's do our hierarchy of elites. Uh -huh. Those elected to the Continental Congress, the very pinnacle. The printers who have access to the real documents, you might say, the press, they're right below it. But the rest of us are in the dark, actually, until July 8th. And it was July, July 8th, 1776, that the printed version was read aloud for the first time. Whoa. So the date on the printed version is July 4th. 
and the public learns about this on July 8th. Right, because back to my, now I realize, flawed analogy about the newspaper, it doesn't show up in a newspaper right away. In fact, it will take, in some cases, weeks and months uh, for the full text to circulate in print in the various newspapers across the colony, because, colonies because of, and the new states because of the pace of uh, the slow pace of travel at, at that time in the 1770s. Interesting. Um, when we talk about elites and you know America's elites uh, eventually signed this document, as I understand it, they didn't sign it on July 4th either, right? That took a while. That's another uh, great point because then now we're into August, by the way. It's, it's probably August 1776. Right. August the 2nd is when it began with those signatures. And because it's the Continental Congress that had voted, if those members were no longer in Philadelphia by August, they don't actually then have the ability to sign it. And so just to throw in another wrinkle of American history, I found out that Thomas McKeon from New Hampshire didn't actually sign the document he voted on all the way until 1781. Oh my goodness, five years later. So when they talk about the signers of the Declaration of Independence, you might put an asterisk saying, when? When? <laughs> now, again, going back to this point that we made about the elites signing or the elites convening uh, for the Declaration of Independence, when we talk about it in high school, we visualize this great unity, this union of Americans coming together for the Declaration of Independence. Was it so? It's a, it's a nice idea. The Continental Congress itself is, at this time, really the manifestation of this new nation that's being formed. But the Continental Congress, much like our United States Congress, was by no means united. Uh, so... I always like to say to my students, the United States is the goal. It may also be the name, but it's the goal that one wants to achieve. I love that. The United States was the goal, was the aim to get to. So right. what, was there conflict to get to that aim? Well, I mean, we can, we can discuss it, but let's just look at, for example, those uh, 50, what is it, 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. They come from the several colonies than states, and they are represented at the time based on population. So Virginia had the, and, and Pennsylvania, followed uh, by New Jersey actually, had the one, two, and three uh, highest numbers of, of signers. Uh, and I think Virginia, I believe, had a total of, I want to say, seven uh, whereas Rhode Island, the smallest state, had only two signers. So already we see within this composition of the Continental Congress that met to sign the 56 signatories that they were representative and proportionately so by population. So there was within already the composition of this first Congress a sense in which representation itself is somehow proportionate and not equal across the board. This is, of course, before the great constitutional convention that leads us to a bicameral legislature. And so as a result, each state was represented variously by a different number of men. And I say men, of course, advisedly, because of the 56 signatories, they were all men. To what extent was it a diverse group of men? I think by our modern standards, we wouldn't call this a diverse group. For the starters, it's only men. And to use our own terminology, these are white men. That being said, across the socioeconomic scale, across the kinds of uh, origins and professions that these men pursued, there's where we saw a kind of diversity. It was mostly lawyers, but included farmers, landholders, and um, generally, we might say the politician class. So they came together as they had been the previous year as part of the Continental Congress to try to unite the colonies in a common effort. And at this point, that common effort was independence. But it should be noted, a year before, not only was this Continental Congress against independence, they were actually sending infamously what's known as the Olive Branch Petition at the end of 1775 that actually pursued peace with Great Britain and attempted to foreclose any future conflict. This, of course, already after the start of the, of the fighting that we now call the American Revolution in April 1775. Wait a minute. I want to make sure I understand the chronology of this correctly. 
We have Lexington, Concord, somewhere in the summer of 1775. It follows April. April. There you go. Spring of 1775. Then uh, sometime after that, we have the Battle of Bunker Hill. And then after that, the Continental Congress sends sort of an olive branch petition to Britain. And several months after that, they have a change of heart and we have a declaration. How do we go from the olive branch to the declaration? Yeah, it's interesting. The story of the olive branch petition is, again, the story of transatlantic travel. The Mm -hmm. olive branch petition was actually declared, and this is another fun date, on July 5th. July 5th? Oh, what a coincidence. 1775. Okay, cool. So one wonders if uh, July was the magic week for this stuff. Uh, but in like fact, it. it's because because they were meeting. And they, when travel was possible in the spring, then all the delegates came to Philadelphia. And, you know, they kind of got going. They sent their committees to work. So by July, okay, let's get some business done. <laughs> and so July 5th, 1775, the business was, please, King George III, you know, accept sort of this as an offer of peace, we, your loyal subjects, we citizens of the British crown and empire wish to remain loyal to you. That's July, 1775. So that should give you a sense between July, 1775 and July, 1776, what a change, what a change. Did this olive branch petition, did that reach King George III? It did. It took, How did it respond? But as, well, as expected, it took weeks and months first to arrive there. Once King George receives a petition, he rejects the petition because it was an illegal document that he believed was created by an illegal Congress. And in the process, he used this then to formally declare the colonies in rebellion, which made therefore even the meeting of that Congress a treasonous act. Now that then takes time to get back to the colonies to get their answer and to then understand for themselves uh, that really something had changed in the nature of this relationship between mother country and colonies and that therefore this Congress which had been wailing for a direction would have to would have to find a new course in a way it seems like George the third helped give the colonists focus in where they were going by essentially well, saying go ahead Yeah, and I would just clarify that the members of the Continental Congress, because I think this gets us into a point we wanted to talk about today, which is just how many colonists were loyal to the crown and remained loyal throughout the war. We call these, of course, the loyalists. Was it a big percentage? Historians work on this exact question to try to answer it, and um, I've seen different percentages, but I think you can measure it at sort of the start of the war versus the end of the war. And I think the percentage I'm going to give you is based on as the war concludes, sort of who's on the losing end, who leaves the colonies, who is forced to uh, essentially renounce uh, this, uh, this land they had been in. And that is between 10 and 15% is the estimate. 10 and um, 15%. That's, that's a big number. It is. It's, of course, a much smaller number than at the start of the war. Yeah, and we don't have polling, or we don't really have a way to scientifically measure it. But again, historians' estimate there is much higher, that at the start of this this fighting, uh, the majority of Americans, of course, were loyal to the crown in 1775. If the majority of the Americans were loyal to the crown in 1775, how do we get to... The Declaration of Independence on July 2nd. Um, did the 13 colonies come together quickly, or was there a lot of, um, you know, arm twisting here? Yeah, it's a good. It's a good question because this is um, also the subject of an excellent book by David McCullough called 1776, where he breaks down uh, the events of that important year, start starting in January 1776, and takes us month by month, and. 1776 begins with, you might say, um, an explosion of not a bomb physically, but of a kind of literary bomb. And that is Thomas Paine's Common Sense. Oh, yes. Yes. And of course, it was first published in January of 1776, right as this new year that we now know to be so important uh, came into into light. And it was a 47-page pamphlet 
that advocated independence of Great Britain using language that was clear and persuasive, making arguments that were both moral and political, and at the end, calling for the common people to sort of recognize ultimately that their loyalty lay not with the crown, but with this new nation that was struggling to come into, into being. So, so in a sense, Paine was speaking to the masses, but of course he was also speaking directly to those delegates who the summer before had sent the Olive Branch petition. And indeed it had a great impact. Those same delegates, a couple new ones, came back in spring of 1776 with an entirely different perspective. Uh, and we might say a more militant attitude towards the, the subject of independence. Thomas Paine was a British subject. Did he live in, uh, in America at the time that he wrote his uh, Common Sense pamphlet? Yeah, he did. He was an English immigrant, like so many uh, yeah. the colonists, whether recent or a generation or so removed. But he came specifically for economic opportunities, like other colonists. He came to the Pennsylvania colony, and he had uh, with him uh, not much. He had, essentially, you might say, just the, the um, genius of his mind and a pen in his hand because he was poor, he was destitute, and he got his lucky break thanks to uh, one of our most famous of the founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, who actually was also the one who published and printed this, this pamphlet of Thomas Paine's. You mentioned beginning of the war and end of the war and how um, the percentage of Americans loyal to the crown changed. It, it decreased significantly. Whether common everyday ordinary americans that were not helping the cause uh, i asked this question because i've heard stories about farmers or other business people that were essentially just going for opportunities which which side whether continental army or the british army uh, makes sense at the time are there any stories that may surprise us americans today I think it's an interesting question since already we're assuming a unified American people. And in the assumption of the question, there's also the sense that all Americans would benefit from the uh, onset of independence. And if there's one group, you might say, within the colonies at this time that would not benefit from independence, it would be the enslaved African-American population. Yeah. And after all, uh, as we'll get to later, I'm sure slavery is only going to grow and deepen and worsen as a problem in American society after independence. And it can be argued, too, that uh, the, the very power that is given to this new nation as a result of independence will enable it to explode its economic conquest of new lands, dislocating Native American peoples and bringing upon this institution. And that's the second group that I would say. Uh, did not stand united behind the colonial independence project, and that would be Native American populations, who for the most part, for the most part, supported the adversaries of the United States in this war, the British. Uh, and indeed, some of the most painful episodes of the American Revolution itself have to, go, have to do with the Continental Army marching into Native lands, destroying villages, and beginning a conquest of, of parts that were further west of, of the, 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 sea, the seaboard colonies and really setting again a stage for um, set of settler colonial dispossession. So it seems like we have two groups who would be, who, who both in, in principle and in fact did not benefit from the project of independence. But to your point too, if we even want to look at your everyday English or Scotch, Irish or German immigrant who are probably the three largest ethnic groups to European ethnic groups to be in the colonies, there is a question about do they benefit? Even so with the privileges that will come with democracy later on, a generation later. And the answer has to do really with where are they? Because the American Revolution and the war for independence begins in, well, Massachusetts. It starts in New England, which is heavily related, uh, relying upon commerce and trade with Europe. And it ends in um, the Chesapeake Bay at a place that's called Yorktown mm -hmm. uh, after a campaign through the southern colonies, which was predominantly relying on agriculture and plantation style labor. So in the moment, uh, it might be said that 
if you're a southerner in 1776, the war hadn't come home yet. And it really, really is a question more of ideology than whether you thought this, this new nation uh, should be independent. Whereas if you're a New Englander in 1776 and you've suffered the British occupation of Boston or you're a New Yorker in 1776 and your home's being invaded, whether on Long Island or in Brooklyn or Manhattan, later being the, war is, the war is there. Yeah, yeah. That's a great transition, uh, Professor Balzerski. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about what came next? The 4th of July, it's, it's celebration, it's recognition during America's antebellum years. Professor Balzerski, we talked about the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War uh, that continued on for some seven years after it. But in this conversation, as you alluded, Americans lived in America for generations, but were not legally considered Americans, were excluded from all of this. And I'm talking about African Americans, Black America. What did they think of Fourth of July, going on 1776, and we go all the way uh, through the 1800s. Yeah, I like to talk about that question since it builds upon our conversation, the previous subject. But I want to first begin with the notion of celebrating the Fourth of July itself, Mm -hmm. since it may be assumed by your listeners that from the moment of independence, from the reading aloud of the Declaration to uh, our present day in 2021, that each year there would be some kind of recognition or celebration. And I wanted to first point out that the first record of a July 4 celebration isn't until 1778, and it's only among the troops of the Continental Army when George Washington uh, ordered an artillery salute and, importantly, a double ration of rum. (laughs) Double ration of rum. There you go. That's very American. You mean two years after the Declaration of Independence, that's when the first celebration came? And then from there, it isn't widely celebrated for political reasons, because July 4 becomes politicized between Federalists, which is the party of Washington and Adams, and these new Republicans or Democratic Republicans, we call them, of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. We really don't see July 4 celebrations picking up in earnest across the new nation until after 1812 and that war. And in the burst of patriotism, uh, brought by this war, we then begin to see July 4 celebrations commonly celebrated in a way as a kind of patriotic display uh, after that war. And it then would be kind of a tradition. And, and very often during July 4 celebrations, politicians would give speeches, and it was an occasion for uh, politicians who were on the rise to give their first public address. It was almost like an open mic, the July 4 celebration. They come out and introduce themselves and use that platform. And so, but but again, we're talking about we're talking about a little bit about elites and who benefits. This is very much the their, the domain of men and white men and of men who could vote and had the ability to be a part of a public sphere and a public discourse. And that kind of is why I think it's so important to first distinguish what was available to the average American by say eighteen fifty two and what wasn't available to then the average African-American by that same year. And it is on July 5th, 1852, during this antebellum period before the Civil War, that we get what I think is of as the great kind of rejoinder or the great counterpoint to the July 4th celebrations that had been happening now for a full generation from none other than Frederick Douglass. Does he on July, you said July 5th? July 5th. Ironically, did not do it on the 4th, which I find interesting. <laughs> Does he give a famous speech? Does he publish a pamphlet? He, he was an orator. Douglas had course, an incredibly, yeah. uh, apparently, incredibly rich and deep baritone voice. So he could be heard and he, his presence was, was notable. He's also one of the most photographed men of the 19th century, perhaps the most. And so when he stood up and gave what to the slave is the 4th of July, on July 5th, 1852. He spoke it, and he spoke it. And uh, uh, if I may interrupt you for a moment, he's given this speech somewhere, I assume, in the North. This is before the Civil War. Well, that's exactly right, because this gets us into, back to that sectional aspect of what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, the North is 
at this time unifying around principles of anti-slavery. We're not quite yet at the birth of the new Republican, i.e. the Abraham Lincoln Republican Party, but we're almost there. And Douglas and the abolitionists, of, of, of whom he was a member, were on the leading edge of it. And believe it or not, the leading city or place where the abolitionists gathered and congregated and lived was Rochester, New York. Wow, Rochester, New York. Not, not, not New York, New York, Rochester, New York. Wow, far away up north. So with his great baritone voice, what did he say? Well, he gave a, um, a talk that, as he often did, was rich in history and rich in biblical uh, reference and essentially told a history from the point of view of African-American people in this country. Now, Douglas was an escaped slave who through this process of bravery and courage and manhood came into his own and by 1852 was perhaps the, the leading black abolitionist voice. So when he says in his speech, in his, in his uh, conclusion, the most famous of lines that um, this 4th of July is yours, not mine, you may rejoice, I must mourn. When he says that famous line, you may rejoice, I must mourn. He turns the table on decades of celebrations of this patriotic holiday by putting a spotlight on the millions and millions of black people who remain in chains as slaves in this country. Did those lines make it to the South back then? Doubtful, right? No, it didn't. But it did make it to the audiences that Douglas wanted to reach, which is to say Northerners. And particularly Douglas wasn't necessarily speaking to fellow African-Americans, although of course he was very much a leader in that community, but he was mostly speaking in a way to what we might call white liberals today, people who could be convinced, people who could uh, see uh, the injustices of slavery and, and make some kind of difference. He was really speaking in a way, you might say, to the next Abraham Lincoln, to a person who perhaps had anti-slavery sentiments but had not really developed an anti-slavery politics. And it would still be several more years, of course, to Lincoln's election in 1860 that then brings upon our first anti-slavery president. Does Frederick Douglass's famous speech in 1852 give us any perspective, uh, inform us at all about Juneteenth and what President Biden has done? I think it's important to, again, tie Juneteenth to the history of this period. It is, of course coming out of, of, again, a local moment, a moment of uh, when the Union Army liberated and, ma and gave word to enslaved African-Americans in Texas, in Galveston, that freedom had come, that between, first of all, the Emancipation Proclamation, but really the 13th Amendment as well, which was going to abolish slavery constitutionally, that any person who was still being told by a white man or by an enslaver that they were a slave, that they were in fact free. And to use Lincoln's phrase from the Gettysburg Address, uh, that a new birth of freedom had taken place. And I mentioned Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address because I wanna point out that Gettysburg is a battle that takes place, of course, during the Civil War and concludes uh, right around the same time on July the 3rd, so that by the time the smoke is cleared and, and unfortunately the the heavy body count and toll uh, of the battle is taking place, it's July 4th. And once again, there's that symbolic resonance so that by the time we get to Juneteenth, two years later, for African-Americans, it really has become symbolically the kind of making good on that new birth of freedom that Lincoln promised in the Gettysburg Address, making good on the Emancipation Proclamation, making good ultimately on a new polity, a new constitution, and, and everything that would come from it. Do you think that from the Civil War on, African Americans thought of 4th of July differently? Yeah, it's a good question about this, the importance of July 4th as a holiday, again, after the Civil War. Um, holidays are really interesting history in their own right, and, and, and one of the Civil War holidays that I want to throw in at this moment is what today what we call Memorial Day, which is uh, ironically, if you sort of look at summer every year, it's Memorial Day is the start of summer, uh, comes at the end of May, July 4th, Independence Day is often kind of uh, 
the peak of summer in some ways. It's when it's truly underway and uh, we celebrate, of course, all the significance that, it, that, that the, the independence during the American Revolution brought. And by the end of the summer, we have Labor Day, mm-hmm. which is uh, when we know school starts again and we know uh, that the, the warm weather, at least in northern parts of the country, is coming to an end. And all three holidays actually have a very significant relationship to major questions of one, race, and two, labor and class, you might say, in this country. Memorial Day was originally called Decoration Day. And it was called oh, wow. that Declaration Day. No, Decoration. Decoration. Oh, okay. Um, decoration. Decorating. Day. Okay. And, and it was called that because it was the day, again, it's spring, it's warmer weather, it's time to be outside, where uh, veterans, where widows, where uh, orphans, where all the people who, who had lost uh, someone during the Civil War would go to the grave sites, would go and decorate, would, like we still do, put an American flag or put flowers or perhaps even clean the grave site if it had not been maintained during the year. Decoration Day is the precursor to Memorial Day. And to be very clear here, Decoration Day originates, we think, in the African-American community in the South. We also think, therefore, that the South did not embrace this concept of Memorial Day. In fact, it merges into this Memorial Day holiday later. And for many years, Memorial Day is not celebrated as a holiday in the South, Uh, again, because of its relationship to it being uh, coming from the Union victory in the Civil War. And on that same note, July 4th, in some places in the South, is also uh, not celebrated. And in fact, on July 4th, 1863, the day after uh, the fighting has ended in Gettysburg, that's also the day where the city of Vicksburg and on the, the bend in Mississippi River surrenders. And, and there, were, there were two big battles that really turned the tide right. and the morale of the Union Army. And it's important to note that Grant, uh, one of my personal heroes, and this is Grant's sort of uh, signature moment in the West where he will win the Battle of Vicksburg and essentially clear the Mississippi River for the Union Army going forward. But my point I want to make is here, the city of Vicksburg, for more than 80 years after the July 4th surrender, refused to acknowledge July 4th as a holiday. And from what I've, I've read, it wasn't until 1943 that um, Vicksburg held its first July 4th celebration. That is fascinating. Uh, Why don't we take a short break and we'll be back right after this. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Professor Balzerski, we talked about sectional differences, the South, uh, the North, especially uh, around the Civil War period. And there are a lot of regional differences here in their acknowledgement, recognition of Independence Day. So at what point does the 4th of July become nationally recognized, celebrated as our day of independence? It's back to my hero, Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> Who, Your hero. It's it said, wanted to dine in Vicksburg to celebrate the 4th in 1863. And fittingly then, as president, after he's elected in 1868 and takes office in 1869, one of Grant's first actions is to assign uh, the legislation that his Congress had passed, his Republican Congress had passed, making July 4th a federal holiday. So it was part, actually, if you want to look at it, of an effort by this new 
uh, Republican, radical Republican, we call them still, Congress to reimagine uh, and to transform the landscape of patriotism. And while July 4th had been regionally significant, it became nationally significant under the Grant administration when in 18, 1870 it became the first federal holiday. And it also is beginning of a kind of modern bureaucracy where federal employees would would start to get some time off and days off. This is, as I said, Labor Labor Day gets us into a whole other history of unionism and the gains that organized labor has made in this country. But in 1870, when Congress passed the bill, this federal holiday, it was an unpaid federal holiday. So it's interesting, too, that... Uh, unpaid federal paid. holiday? That's on american <laughs> You know, so it, when, it really is. When uh, President Grant signed this bill to make uh, the 4th of July a national holiday. And I think you alluded to this in the previous segment. There was pushback from the South. Well, not, I, not so much in that. I mean, it was that. See, the thing about Grant's first term is that the Republicans controlled House, Senate, and White House. They could do whatever they want. They did. This is the time where they're passing the 14th Amendment. They give citizenship rights to African-Americans and the 15th Amendment that same year. I mean, the 15th Amendment and the 4th of July were signed in the same year, 1870 as holidays and constitutional amendments, respectively. Is there, is there any special meaning to the word independence and the Declaration of Independence and our Independence Day that has morphed over the years? The Declaration of Independence is our independence from Britain. But has that term changed to different Americans uh, that we're widely different than the population that lived in 1776? I'd like to first start with some of the terms we use for these major events, right? The American Revolution, the Civil War. Uh, during the American Revolution, the notion that what was happening was really more of a civil war between, on the one hand, patriots, and on the other hand, loyalists. A has civil kind of war. Been, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of been lost in this patriotic gloss, again, back to our earlier point, that all Americans somehow supported this independence. Knowing now, as we learned today, that that was not the case, we can really begin to see the American Revolution as a kind of civil war between those who wanted to be independent and those who wanted to be loyal to the crown. So similarly, the civil war, the one which, which was called the war of the rebellion, by the way, for, for decades, and it wasn't until the 20th century that the modern usage of the Civil War becomes operative and adopted and, and frankly, now normalized. Was called the War of the Rebellion even rebellion even in official documents? Well, if you actually look at the, the published records, such uh -huh. official records of the War of Rebellion, which any university library worth its salt has these massive green tomes with gold lettering on it, that's the phrase on it. Oh, interesting. And, and so, you know, rebels and the rebellion, th those were the phrases used by, of course, union of course. forces and, and politicians in the North during the war. And it was, never, it was only rarely in the time referred to as a civil war, but certainly not the civil war, right? Mm -hmm. Because it gets, it gets back to like World War One. World War One's not called World War One until the Great War. war yeah. yeah, right. And there's a similar process, but but actually, it, it gets us into reunification and this process of reunion that, in the softening of the differences between North and South, decades later, part of what is glossed over is the very name, and then there's a transformation of it from the very war. name of the Declaration of uh, of, no, 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 of, the, of, of the Civil War. Oh, I see. But in the pro but see, I think this is what I'm getting at. In the process, as the Civil War is glossed, as it's all about the old veterans coming back and shaking hand across Pickett's Charge, as they did year after year into the 20th century, it lays the groundwork for the July 4th holiday being uh, sort of a national patriotic display. And it, it is not coincidental that when, when Franklin Roosevelt makes July 4th a paid federal holiday uh, in 1938, that by that time, that generation, the Civil War generation, had entirely uh, passed away. 
and and by which which allowed him which which gave him more leeway to make that a paid holiday and do you think when he made it a paid holiday there was an uptick in celebration and observance probably was yeah i i think actually again what i've read is that the south uh, if you if you read oral histories or just sort of southern uh, southern literature and memoir uh, people talk about how they don't they when they were growing up in the 20 early 20th century they didn't celebrate the fourth in most places in the South. And it really isn't until the era. Yeah, it really isn't until the 30s and 40s. And actually it gets to the patriotism of World War II. I mean, World War II actually did a lot to uh, bring a new kind of national patriotism into display. And this is, of course, the era where we get the reading now uh, in our schools of the Pledge of Allegiance. Eisenhower will add the phrase under God as he would, but this is still uh, for the first time where Americans are beginning to see themselves fully as part of a nation. And again, it has a lot to do with the long, decades-long process of uh, what we still call reunion and reunification between North and South. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Bowserski as we get into the perspective. Uh, Professor Bowserski, one of the things that I glean from our conversation is that the history of 4th of July in 1776 and the years after it is sort of surrounded with divisions and disagreements, yet we survived as a country. In fact, we've thrived. Are there lessons to be learned from this, from this history of division and disagreement for our present time? Let's just go back to the end of World War II and to how the 4th of July is changing. Um, I read a speech by, well, really her column that Eleanor Roosevelt wrote every every day. It was called My Day, and she wrote it incredibly daily for her entire term as First Lady and for years what beyond. What stamina. Uh, she, was, uh, she is something else. And, and the 1945 July 4th edition of My Day, uh, I was reading it over in preparation for today, and I, I was struck by how Eleanor Roosevelt tied it into uh, not so much American patriotism, but as this new and emerging concept of human rights, which ties into what she would end up doing as our first uh, ambassador to the United Nations and in producing the Declaration of Human Rights that, that is still the landmark document of the United Nations to this day, that, that Eleanor Roosevelt was the key author and ultimately uh, chair of the committee that, that, that produced it a kind of echo in a way you might say to the Declaration of Independence. And so we look to uh, that, that moment of uh, establishing human rights as the new basis or principle on which uh, our whole society, not just the United States, would be judged. And we, we come to recognize that July 4th can mean now more than simply a celebration of American independence. It can also mean uh, in, in the post-World War II context and in really in the last 75 years of our history, the beginning of a new uh, set of human rights for the rest of the world. What lessons can we glean for us Americans now with the divisions that we have going? I mean, a few months ago, we had a U.S. president that impeached, was impeached for a second time, and we had our Congress attacked. Is there anything from... Our divisions in the past that can inform our divisions now as we come to 4th of July? I think it's important to recognize that American politics is in some ways um, neutral towards these holidays, that whoever the president, whichever the party in power, that these are cultural phenomena that transcend any one political leader or political moment. And the sort of signature style or use of a holiday uh, is what kind of makes it interesting to change from, uh, from administration to administration. Back to the previous administration under President Trump, he also used July 4th to uh, proudly demonstrate America's military prowess. And he wanted a march mm-hmm. uh, of our American military. He got it. That was the one time he got his uh, display of tanks uh, marching down the Capitol and, of course, of course uh, a show of air superiority as well is very common today and, and you know the, the flyovers of our fighter jets is a kind of 
common feature. I remember that, that Blue Angels growing up in San Francisco. Yeah, Blue Angels, and that and that that actually transcends July Fourth, but it's kind of part of our summer culture to really go out and see uh, these military fighting machines and, and say this is this is one reason you can sort of feel safe and patriotic and all at once. Um, I think there's, again, different meanings, different moments. I think back to 2002, the first July 4th celebration after the attacks of 9-11, and it was a particularly patriotic moment as well for President Bush at that time. Um, in 2021 then, right, in a moment of political fracture with a new president, Joe Biden, his first July 4th celebration, really, my question will be, uh, how will, what will be the symbolic meaning that he will bring? to the July 4th celebration. And what I would suggest to President Biden, because I know he's listening. <laughs> he is, of course. Uh, is that he could take a page from a book that he knows so well, a book called American History. Uh, he was a history major, after all. And to pick a symbolic uh, sort of setting, to pick a historically significant place in which to deliver, which will undoubtedly be an important speech on July 4th that the president will give. Uh, and not to do so from the confines of the White House, which had been the tendency of the last administration, or from some golf resort, but from a place that has significance <laughs> to America. And which the president, is. well, I was going to say the president had gave two very important addresses during the campaign. We may remember them. One was at Warm Springs, Georgia, but the other was at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, Yeah, uh, where, again, he spoke to history and he spoke to the importance of what he believed his political mission and moment. So I would suggest that the president um, determine a place in which to do it. And, you know, the previous president, I should point out, did speak one year at Mount Rushmore. Uh, and so, again, that could be a potential place to reclaim another space that doesn't belong to any one president or term. Uh, but so I'm not exactly sure where Joe Biden should talk, but I hope it's not tucked away in Delaware somewhere. I hope he travels and, and gives us uh, a speech. We'll remember. Since he was a history major, he's welcome to the Peel Out News. Speaking of presidents, and President Biden has made a significant connection between uh, this 4th of July and COVID and recovery, God willing, recovery from COVID. I know you're involved with a project with C-SPAN uh, about surveying presidents. I'd love to uh, learn about that a little bit. Yeah, I'll connect the two because this is the first uh, survey in which former President Trump will be ranked. And while there's, there's still some reason to think that it's too soon and that we don't have perspective, it's been the case that since 2000, the outgoing president, whether it be Clinton, Bush, Obama, now Trump is subject to a ranking. And it's part of, I think, an effort to allow historians to take stock of the moment, to communicate with the public, and to engender debate, which is, I think, part of what July 4th can tell us. So this ranking is by American historians, right? From what I understand, I was one of them and one of 142 historians surveyed. Uh, the results will be released tomorrow, Wednesday, June 30th, and they will uh, undoubtedly be making headlines since, again, President Trump will be ranked for the first time. Um, what are the sort of the basis, the criteria that a former president is ranked on? And is this done for every four years after a president leaves the office? Either four or eight. The last three okay. presidents of were two-term yeah. presidents, as you know. So this is the first one-term president we've had who went for re-election but did not get re-elected. So it's something of a difference between the previous three surveys, but it follows the same formula. There are 10 categories in which historians judge uh, the president, and from there uh, it's tallied and ranked and tabulated. And I would point out that the three rankings that I think the president Trump will be most... I think perhaps severely even criticized, get to uh, his management of the coronavirus pandemic, as well as the fallout after the election of 2020 and the horrible events at the Capitol on January 6th. But the, the, he's going to, I think, fare poorly under these three categories, and they are crisis leadership, moral authority, and economic management. That being said, this gets to the COVID-19 pandemic and the current president, President Biden, he's resting his entire really administration on his ability to meet vaccination goals and to keep the health and well-being of the nation as a priority. He had announced really early on in the spring that he wanted July 4th to be the day 
uh, where sort of America returned to normal, where we could move beyond the restrictions that we've, we've been facing between mask wearing. We're getting pretty close to that. And, and for what I've read, the president will not meet his stated goal of 70% of, uh, of Americans, but he will be much closer when, it, when you count adults. Part of what's been the challenge for this administration has been to reach young people. And as a college professor, let me tell you, I spent a portion of every class talking about um, the benefits of the coronavirus vaccine and why it's free and available and every student should do it. Uh, plug to Eastern Connecticut, my students, uh, for, for getting vaccinated, to the state of Connecticut for being a leader in that in that fight. Uh, but unfortunately, getting back Great to job. regional difference, um, unfortunately, there are many states in this country that lag not just uh, at 70, we're talking below 50% of the population has chosen at this point to be vaccinated. And it's actually on the Biden administration and including the first lady, Jill Biden, was Jill, Dr. Jill Biden was in Mississippi. Uh, maybe getting back to where the president should give his 4th of July address, maybe it should be at a COVID vaccination site in Mississippi. That is such uh, a wonderful idea. It really is. I mean, just to say it, if that's the president's goal right now, if that's what American independence is about, in 2021, let's push hard to get every last American to see the patriotic value, I might say, of being vaccinated against COVID-19. Well, we'll publish this episode before the 4th of July, so maybe President Biden will hear it and take your advice on that. With respect to the C-SPAN report that's coming out uh, before the 4th of July, uh, will there be, uh, is it possible for us to include a link to that in the caption for this podcast episode? Absolutely. It'll be on the C-SPAN website. You'll be able to see the previous four surveys. Wonderful. And I, I think your viewers will have a lot to dig into. If they like American history and they like the history of American presidents, there'll be uh, so much data. And particularly, I find it interesting to see how presidents' rankings rise and fall through the years. It's not just about President Trump, after all. All the presidents are being ranked once again in 2021. So in this ranking process, do you go all the way back when you say all the presidents to President Washington? That's right. That's right. President Washington's ranked. President Trump is ranked. And Grover Cleveland's twice. So I have to say all 42 in between, right? There's 44 so far presidents being ranked, even though Trump was 45, Grover Cleveland twice. It, it messes with the math. Biden, 46. So we'll, we'll rank 44 presidents from Washington to Trump. Um, and as Any I said- Any bets on who's going to be number one? <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's not going to pay out very well because it's so guaranteed. <laughs> it is. You, you I, can you bet your entire Grant, savings. Aren't you? No, see, but <laughs> I might want to put Grant number one. Yeah. <laughs> but you could bet your entire life savings and, and only get a dollar payout. And that would be, of course, because Abraham Lincoln has been ranked uh, the greatest president in every survey I've ever seen since any survey began since the 19, in fact, 60s. Uh, when surveys really got underway, Lincoln will be will be the, the ranked first tomorrow. And does this include professors that teach in Southern universities? Yes, it does. the 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 roster will include the entire nation. There was an effort to reach regional diversity, of course, diversity of sex, diversity of race, and as well uh, as types of institutions, not just four year institutions, but community colleges, as well as public history sites and venues. That's wonderful. Professor Balzerski, thank you so much for educating me once again. And our listeners, you're welcome to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience.
Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.